It's different for black boys, harder for black girls. Start your own business venture, thrive in a black world. Where you and your homies don't gotta worry about getting fired and facing discrimination. We are creators, we don't go begging for placement where we are not wanted. And I'ma keep it a hundred youngin'. We used to be hunted, they had us sitting in zoos. So what you see in the news is really nothing that's new. They really targeting you. You hear me talking to you? Race and Rose is brought to you by your hosts, Deja Staten and Christina Alford. Hello. This podcast was created as a way to address the many racial issues that this country, and specifically BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, living in this country, have been carrying, confronting, living through, basically from the beginning of our history which we would like to mark our history is from before uh, the United States was was founded with, you know, the indigenous inhabitants who were here long before and were genocided by the predecessors to the U.S. government. So we will be covering history, current events, systemic issues that are affecting all of us. Today. Today. <laughs> so why Rosé, Christina? Rosé, because, well, for all of you who know us, we always have a glass or a bottle or ten. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. But not a lie. But not no. Um, close in hand. Um, and honestly, it's, you know, we'll be covering a lot of heavy issues. These conversations are not easy at all. And it's just a little bit more digestible with a glass of rosé in hand. That it is. So Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Um, we are doing another special delivery episode. Um, today, it's going to be on the World Cup. Um, World Cup is about to wrap up. Wrap it up. Um, like yeah, a condom have, <laughs> huh? So that sounded like a condom commercial. Wrap it up. So we have oh, Messi versus Mbappe. Mbappe. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I laughing, Christina? What were you doing in Italy, <laughs> in Italy? Uh, when we were watching the beginning of the World Cup? First of all, Deidre and I just, all we did was eat and watch the World Cup, basically. Yeah. I came all out did, of my bedroom. It was Mbappe. Screaming at every time this man <laughs> touched the ball. Um, wait, no, we're going to talk about this injury, though, really quickly, because I know this has no relevance to the World Cup, but like Christina, for those of you who don't know, is um, a workout-aholic and like has to work out, right? Like she can't go on vacation and not work out. It's like a fight. So she's like, you know, in our living room doing like YouTube workout videos. <laughs> like she's like doing all the things, right? So this one day I slept in late. I wake up at like, you know, like 1030 or something or 11 and I come out and I'm like, where the hell is Christina? Like, I don't hear any noise. I don't hear any music. TV's not on. And Christina is like sitting at the kitchen table looking like hella sad. And she just goes, <laughs> I fell. <laughs> like, what? And Christina had decided. Bloody, like bloody leg. Bloody knee. Hand. Bloody hand, bloody elbow. And Christina had decided she was going to go on a run down. There was like, we were staying at this like this set of condos or villas like near the ocean and they had like a private beach or several private beaches on this really pretty hiking trail like to the beach and Christina decided to run on the hiking trail that was like muddy and covered (laughs) in rocks and ate shit apparently (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, what if you had just like fallen and like knocked your head? Like, I mean, I would have known where you are because that's how much of a workout holic you are. But like, like that would have been the first place I looked for you. But <laughs> still, like you would have just been like down there laid out and it would have been yes. like an entire ass problem. Yes, yes, yes. Oh Anyways. All right. Thanks for that story time. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry, I felt like the world, the, world, the world needed to know. All right, so today, World Cup edition, we are going to talk about Qatar, the building of World Cup. How do we get here? How do we get to Qatar? Um, the history behind all the bullshit that's been happening there with regards to World Cup, illegal um, business practices, <laughs> labor practices. Yeah, yeah. Under, <laughs> understatement the of the century. <laughs> And just all the racism that's tied into the World Cup, unfortunately, even though it is the world's most global, globally recognized and played sport. Um, yeah. And I'm just going to add to what you said, like all the racism, but also like all the classism and like ethnocentrism and xenophobia and all the other stuff. Because like when we're talking about the World Cup, of course, race is a huge issue. You have all these countries with people who are different races, um, but you also have like Europe and the West versus, you know, like what is, and I'm air quoting the global South and like the, all of these ideas about, you know, class and the ways that, you know, oppression moves. So I think lots of different angles are going to pop up in, in this conversation. We're going to talk about equity um, as well. So yeah. Giddy up. Giddy up. Um, so oh, I was just going to say, we're both not drinking anything right now. <laughs> We aren't. I'm still dizzy. I, well, no, this, that's not true. I'm drinking 100% Kona coffee because I'm in Hawaii and orange juice, but we are not drinking alcohol right now. A, because it's the morning and B, because I've had vertigo for a week and a half and I am so not about this life. But you know what, P, I actually am going to grab a glass of champagne because I might as well be like a little tipsy if I'm going to be um, dizzy anyways. I'm going to make a mimosa. So I actually have rosé. I'll go get some rosé. Okay. Okay. Wine problem solved. This is... um. So I'm drinking Vuv. That's what I'm drinking because I decided to be bougie yesterday and buy Vuv. And I'm like two seconds from pouring some orange juice into it, which <laughs> I feel like anybody who drinks a lot of champagne would try to murder me right now if they watched me. I'm drinking my fave. Oh, Gerard. Yes. Always. I always love the bottle and I love the liquid. <laughs> you always have Gerard and summer water, I feel like, in your fridge. Yes. Oh, correct. Okay. So we thought that the best place to start <laughs> would be talking about Qatar and how they got the bid for this World Cup um, and some of the controversy surrounding. World Cup 2022 before World Cup 2022 even started, right? So um, with respect to the bid, like how, you know, a World Cup is hosted, who gets to host, what country it's going to be in, um, it's always drama. It's always controversial. Part of this is because FIFA is shady as hell. And like, I don't know if any of you've seen, like there's a, a documentary that dropped recently about some of the shadiness of FIFA. FIFA is headquartered in Zurich, um, Switzerland. Uh, there's been just a, a media firestorm, I would say, in the past five years, 10 years. Uh, time means nothing during COVID times, but um, 
just about some of the shady monetary practices, bribes being paid, et cetera. And so there would have been drama whether this was Qatar or not, but this um, World Cup bid was specifically um, or particularly dramatic, I shall say, um, A, because people are racist and it's in the Middle East and B, because it's just like always dramatic. So just to give you an idea of what the bidding process is, Um, for a World Cup. And we're going to be talking specifically in this segment about 2018 and 2022, just to give you kind of like two um, glimpses into the World Cup bidding process. The process begins um, much, much, much earlier um, than the World Cup itself. And typically they're deciding on multiple World Cups at a time. So in March of 2009, the bidding process uh, officially began for World Cup 2018 and 2022. So that's nine years or almost nine years before the World Cup um, is going to take place in 2018. And at the beginning of this process in March 2009, there were 11 bids from 13 countries. And why those numbers don't match, occasionally countries will bid together, right? So for example, the next World Cup in 2026 is going to be hosted by the United States, Canada, and Mexico as like three host nations. Um, So 11 bids from 13 countries. Um, Some of them were withdrawn immediately. Um, A couple were rejected. Two of the remaining nine bids applied only to the 2022 World Cup, right? So two of the bids were like, we don't want anything to do with 2018. That's too soon, whatever, whatever. Um, And the rest were applications for both World Cups. Over the course of bidding, all of the non-European bids for 2018, so all of the non-European countries that bid to be World Cup hosts for 2018 were withdrawn. And that resulted in the exclusion of all European host countries, right? So we're already in a bad place. There's no representation for the 2018 bidding process um, really from non-European countries, either because of withdrawing or because they've been rejected for some reason. And by the time of the decision for the 2018 World Cup, um, the pool of potential hosts was England, Russia, and a joint bid from Belgium and the Netherlands, where both countries would host together, as well as a joint bid from Portugal and Spain, right? We know that 2018 World Cup ended up taking place in Russia, which was not without its own drama for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, some drama about oligarchs, who was funding what, et cetera. With respect to 2022, the bids for the World Cup came from Australia, Japan, Qatar, South Korea, the United States. Um, Indonesia had their bid disqualified because the government, I guess, wasn't supportive. It takes a ton of money and a ton of government resources to pull off a World Cup. And Mexico withdrew for financial reasons. Like I just said, Mexico is going to be co-hosting with the United States and Canada in 2026. Um, So on December 10th, or sorry, December 2nd, 2010, Russia and Qatar were picked as locations for the 2018, 2022 World Cups, respectively. Um, Now, here's where the controversy starts to come in. (laughs) So immediately, um, and this is in 2010 when this is announced, immediately people start saying that Qatar specifically was bribing people to get into the World Cup. Um, I think there were some allegations that Russia did too, but you can see the path we're going down, right? Like immediately like, oh, like this, you know, oil rich region of the world with a lot of Muslim people is, is you know, bribing their way into the World Cup. Um, 11 of the 22 committee members who voted on the 2018 and 2022 tournaments were either fined, suspended, banned for life or prosecuted for corruption, right? So 50% of the committee members 
from FIFA who voted on who got to host in 2018 and 2022 were punished in some way. Um, that should tell you like the state of FIFA in terms of legitimacy, you know, being on the up and up, et cetera. Did I miss anything there, Christina? Because I know like you're deep in the soccer world as no, well. No, so, like, you're what right. else? And we're also going to talk about some of the people, some of the executives that are mm. <laughs> leading FIFA who are deeply rooted or in led. <laughs> yeah. Led, yes, who are just deeply rooted in just shadiness and racism. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. So here's the other piece of controversy. And this was not in 2010. This was, um, well, I guess it started in 2010. Um, Once a World Cup bid is received, countries start scrambling, right? Like you have to make sure you have enough stadiums to have games hosted simultaneously. A lot of countries, um, you know, especially in like one city, only have one stadium big enough to have a major soccer game with, you know, tens of thousands, if not close to 100,000 people in attendance. Um, Like Los Angeles, for example, I think the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl are the only two places you could have a soccer game of this magnitude other than the new, what's that, where is, what is uh, Galaxy play now? The Home Depot Center or something like that? Yeah, and LA. Yeah. LAFC. And I don't even think those hold anywhere near the number of people you would need to have for like a World Cup match. Like they're not built for that. I could be wrong. So like, let us know if you're listening to this and that's incorrect. But anyways, the point is even a city as big and as wealthy as LA, um, we only have two stadiums that would be capable of holding anywhere near the size of, you know, or number of fans that it takes. So immediately Qatar, you know, in 2010 starts arranging for like, how are we going to pull off world cup 2022? This is what all countries do when they get the bid. Um, And they start building things, right? Well, here's the thing. Lots of people died. And we'll talk about why. Um, and there's some controversy as to like how many people died, what they were doing when they were dying, died, like whether or not it had anything to do with the World Cup. Um, but the big number that everyone is hearing and everyone keeps talk- talking about is 6,500. 6,500 deaths of migrant workers in Qatar in the lead up to World Cup 2022. 12 years. 12 years, yeah. Um, so, and this is a truly staggering number, right? 6,500 people is a lot of people um one would would be you know sad and shocking but 6500 is like wow breathtaking um but let's break this down a little bit and talk about it and like where this comes from so Qatar as a country i believe has about 3 million people living in it it's not a huge country that's smaller than the population of los angeles it's it's not very large and i think ireland has like a similar population um to Qatar in terms of numbers like 3 to 4 million the population is almost entirely foreign citizens. So upwards of 80%, perhaps almost 90% of the people who live in Qatar are foreign citizens. And the migrant workforce in Qatar is estimated at 2 million. That means two in three people who live in the country are migrant workers. And these are people who are employed in domestic work, in construction, et cetera. And it's mostly men, and mostly men specifically from uh, the Philippines and other Southeast Asian countries Um, and countries that include India, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh, right? So massive overrepresentation of Asia in the workforce, uh, the migrant workforce in Qatar. Um, And I I think the first thing we should be thinking about here is like, so we already have two thirds of the country's population is migrant workers, almost all of whom are Southeast Asian, which means they are not of the same race or ethnicity or national origin as the country they're working in, which I think already sets us up for like, 
a situation where we might not be caring as much about what happens to these people if we are thinking about this from the Qatari standpoint or from the global standpoint, right? How often do we hear stories about Southeast Asians um, and human rights and these sorts of things in Western mainstream media? Not very often. Um, so something to think about from the beginning, right? Um, and just to give you some insight into like the amount of money that goes into the ship, Qatar was the first Middle Eastern country to get a bid to hold the World Cup. And I think they took this very seriously. And they have spent upwards of $300 billion on infrastructure projects for the World Cup. So this doesn't necessarily mean stadiums. This could be like uh, updating their metro system or um, putting like more taxi drivers in place or building more hotels or more restaurants or whatever it might be for the country to support um, the World Cup. Uh, it's estimated that Qatar has spent about $6.5 billion on just the stadiums um, for the World Cup, right? Um, other construction projects that they've talked about are public transportation upgrades, road, road upgrades, new skyscrapers, hotels and housing, um, and a new city. They literally built a new city. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, how are you just like, oh, hey, we want a new city. So they built a new city called Lucille. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but this is going to be where the final, the World Cup finals are going to be held, right? Um, so just, just quickly, the, the official count that has been delivered from Qatar to the world um, with respect to World Cup deaths of, of migrant workers is 37. 37 non-work-related deaths. And I quote, only three from work-related accidents. Um, I, I'm, I'm saying this facetiously, only three, like that should still be alarming, three people dying to build stadiums so that people can watch soccer. Many people believe this is an undercount, right? We just said 6,500, they're saying 37. Clearly there's something missing between 6,500 and 37. So it's unclear like what the, the full death toll is. What is clear is that a big part of what has happened here is that Qatar is a very hot country. This region of the world regularly has temperatures over 100 degrees. You have people who are building um, the venues for these games, building housing, etc., um, in temperatures that far exceed what the human body is supposed to be in. And I think a point that drives this home is they switched the World Cup. They switched the World Cup from the fall or the late summer when it normally is um, to now, which is what, December? Um, I guess we started like right around Thanksgiving in the United States. So end of November. And they did this specifically because they didn't want soccer players to die while they were playing soccer because of the heat. I think it's worth noting that two foreign journalists have also died while covering um, the games because like it is still hot there, um, still very dry, arid. We're not sure exactly what the reason for those deaths was, but I just think it's worth pointing out they switched when this would be held so that soccer players would not die. But those workers were still working um, in this extreme heat, right? So that's a major factor here. Um, and from what we've read and researched, suicide was also a major concern. A lot of construction workers who are building um, in these conditions, a lot of migrant workers generally um, live in really shitty conditions, um, really, you know, kind of rundown, under-resourced conditions that might lack indoor plumbing, um, bathrooms, etc. So imagine you're doing this backbreaking work for 16 hours a day. Um, you are underpaid. Uh, you are, you know, doing this in 100 degree weather, and you go home at the end of the day to somewhere really shitty that isn't clean, um, that's not safe. Potentially, suicide is a major concern. So that's a big part of 
of what is going on kind of in the backdrop, in the background. Um, and that has a real human cost here. So P, I'm going to toss it to you um, to talk sure. about like why this is going yeah. on. Yeah. So Qatar right now, they're in, like, in a huge PR disaster because if you look this up, there's multiple news articles on just criticizing how they've been mistreating all the laborers, et cetera, right? So, but authorities have been trying to deflect this criticism for racism, which is actually incorrect. Um, so these issues are actually deeply rooted in modern day racialized societal and labor systems that go way, way back to where day? To the OGs, the British Empire, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the world's Would biggest you, colonial power and our favorite white biggest, people to talk about. We love talking about this. If you haven't listened to our Royals episode, we kind of break down two the British Empire. Two. But yeah, we did, too. we did. So yeah, so yeah. again, like we mentioned before, there are only 22 countries in the world that the British didn't colonize. So and if you're confused, there's like 190 countries in the world, so 22 out of 190. Like, right. You had really yes, low yes. odds of escaping the British Empire. Yes. Okay, so just a little bit of history. So from 1871 to 1913, Qatar was part of the Ottoman Empire. And then in 1916, um, it became a British protectorate. Um, so basically the British were protecting them um, in exchange for um, just their protection. Um, can, in 19- can I say can I say yeah. one thing really quick about protectorates? Um, so if you want examples of other protectorates, an example is Israel, for example. Israel was a British protectorate. And when you see protectorate, what you should think is colony. Great Britain is not protecting these countries for free. And they're also not just like I'm air quoting protecting. They're infusing their values. They're infusing their cultural norms. They're infusing their language, their history, right? Um, so if the British were in Qatar from this point, this point in time forward, they were getting massive British influence in Qatar, right? Um, so just something that that I want to point out in terms yeah. of how protectorates work. They were basically controlling their foreign policy. So some of these labor systems included the slave trade, of course, uh, indentured. Of course. <laughs> I love, I'm sorry. We're so we're so jaded. We talk about slavery so much that literally, like, you just didn't even miss a beat. You were just like the slave oh, system, no, of slave course. Jaded. Next, next. <laughs> so let's add on. So apparently, oh. Qatar's main commodity before it began exporting oil and natural gas was pearls. So indentured pearl divers were a huge thing. Wild. Yeah, wild, right? And then the follow system um, for migrant workers, which cemented the racial hierarchies based on national origin and linked to the history of, of the British Empire. I'm looking at a map right now because I think a lot of people are ignorant of, and I mean that not in like you're ignorant, like you're stupid. I mean, ignorant as in like, don't know, um, the geography of Qatar. So Qatar is on the Persian Gulf and is a peninsula. And so it is surrounded by water on like three sides, if we're thinking about this, is like kind of a finger sticking out um, into the Persian Gulf. Um, it has a land border that it shares with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the closest countries um, near Qatar other than Saudi Arabia are Bahrain, which is also like island, uh, peninsula, nation, 
and the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Um, so this is not like some place that's just like in the middle of the desert. Um, like I think a lot of people racistly think about the Middle East. Um, it is very hot in Qatar, but it's on the water. And so indentured servants as pearl divers, like that's why um, it's it's a, a, a maritime nation. Right. So Qatar basically operates on a de facto national origin-based caste system. Um, And then you mentioned already some of the migrant workers, but they come from a lot of Asian and African countries. You mentioned this already, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, the Philippines, and Kenya. So basically all my peeps. (laughs) They're all there. (laughs) All there. All of you. Your whole whole being. My whole thing. um, My whole thing is all there. Yeah, this is your first race and rosé episode. I mean, we talk about this all the time, but but Christina is Filipina, Black, Japanese, um, in origin, in race, in ethnicity, uh, culture, and so that's why she's she's saying that. <laughs> Ta-da! Oh my god! Ta-da. Okay. So, <laughs> so basically, um, with the Kafala system, um, it allows British officials to import and control large numbers of colonial subjects from South Asia, um, extending their control over a broader population of foreign workers. However, um, we didn't mention that it was abolished in 1971. Um, however, Which was not that long ago. No. It was 15 years before I was born. Right. So, but even with that, they just retained these practices. Therefore, this still happening um, during World Cup. Shout outs to colonization and imperialism. And like, I just, what Christina just said, like, I, I want to like make this abundantly clear. What P just said is that the reason that Qatar currently has all of these migrant workers from a very specific part of the world or very specific parts of the world is because of colonization. Because the British Empire established a protectorate over Qatar in 1916, they said, oh, hey, all of our other colonies, right? Um, Kenya, uh, India, right? All of these other places. Guess what? You're our subjects. You have to do what we say because essentially colonialism is slavery. Um, And we're going to send you to Qatar, which is not a new colony. We're, we're calling it new shit these days. It's a protectorate. And you have to go there and you have to do work for the empire to mine wealth, whether it's pearls, oil, whatever it might be, right? Um, so just like the, the reach of colonization is deep. Like the, the colonial pimp hand is fucking strong. This shit is serious. Like in terms of time um, from 1916 to 2022, we are still feeling the impacts of this. And people have literally been moved to places where they are not from because of colonization and its long-term impacts. Um, so I, I feel like that is so important when we're talking about identity, race, et cetera, um, and how people ended up to be where they are and how many of these people probably ended up amongst the 6,500 dead in the past 12 years, perhaps related to the World Cup, perhaps not, but definitely related to colonization um, and treating migrant workers like human garbage. Right. And so all the migrant workers arriving in these countries, they needed a kafil, which is basically a sponsor to take responsibility of their legal status, including whether they can um, enter or leave the country or change employers. So basically, which is they just, like wild. <laughs> zero right. Yeah. So it's like you're getting like a nanny who is your legal guardian who tells you whether you can switch jobs, who tells you you know, whether you can leave the country. I have no idea whether or not this is true with respect to Qatar specifically, but I know for a fact there are other countries 
um, in the world and in the region who take people's passports when they get there to prevent them from leaving, right? Um, so a lot of these people are trapped, essentially. They can't leave no matter what. To some extent, this is similar to what happens to migrant workers in the United States. No one takes their passport, but they know if they leave the country, they can't get back in. They're leaving their family. They're leaving their livelihood, um, et cetera. So just another thing to think about in this like fucked up, you know, migrant worker colonization racism fucking mush that we're talking about is how this impacts people's lived realities. Like imagine you go to a place that's completely foreign. You don't speak the language. You're by yourself. You're the primary breadwinner and you can't leave the fucking country and you have to get permission from mommy dearest through the kafil system to leave like it's wild it's crazy yeah so now we're in the world cup so many culture clashes right um it's kind of the western world against a conservative conservative i think conservative is the word you're looking for. sorry conservative oh, way so. of life branded so yeah what's the word I think it's interesting because we started this part of the conversation by saying, you know, Qatar is essentially saying, like, we're not racist. Um, Y'all are racist. And I think, like, both of those statements can be true at the same time, right? <laughs> like, I think the idea that attacks on Qatar specifically and the hyper focus on Qatar can be motivated by racism and ethnocentrism and xenophobia, but like also Qatar's behavior can be very racist. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not an either or, like we don't have to pick. Um, like, it's true that that both of those things can be happening. And I think both of those things are happening, right? Um, so we can have a conversation about, you know, uh, Qatar's labor system being racist and there's a foreign policy uh, what's it called article that we'll link to um, so you can take a look at that but I also want us to consider like who writes for foreign policy right it's western white journalists mostly um, who have a very western white viewpoint on the world so I just want to make sure like we're approaching the subject matter and the conversation with our eyes wide open which is all of the above right? <laughs> like this shit is fucked from every angle so one more thing we I think it's like really important to talk about at the top here is <laughs> not just race, but um, sexual orientation, gender identity, et cetera. Right. And I know that sounds like a non sequitur, but it's not um, because from the inception of um, this World Cup, both like from the second that, you know, a ball was kicked um, to from the second that Qatar won the bid, there have been concerns over LGBTQIA plus people. And the reason is partly I'm air quoting conservative values. I'm going to go ahead and say what I think right here, which is fucking bullshit. I'm calling bullshit. Like, I don't care like what your religion is. The United States does this just as well as Qatar does. Um, Christianity does this just as well as Islam does. This is homophobia and transphobia. And I don't care what you claim the reason is. What we are seeing right now in Qatar at the World Cup is not a culture clash when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. It's hatred. Um, and fear. And so what we are seeing is certain countries, certain people wanting to wear pride shirts, fly pride flags, wear armbands um, that are in support of pride. And what we saw in response to that was FIFA saying, no, you can't do that. And we'll do you one better. We're going to fine you if you do that, because they were supporting Qatar's wishes, which were, we don't want to see any of that shit. We don't want to see any of that gay shit, right? Um, so it's fascinating what's going on here, this this argument that there's a culture clash 
when in reality, there's like a human rights clash. <laughs> um, and you can call that Western if you want to. But at the end of the day, everybody on this planet is a human trying to live their life to the best of their ability and trying to live their life without being persecuted, whether it's being persecuted for their religion um, or persecuted for their sexual orientation or their skin color or their gender identity. Um, so, you know, I posed this question in, in our outline for today's episode as culture, religion or hatred. Um, and I'm firmly in the hatred camp, right? Um, you know, you see the same shit in the religious right in the United States, where we are arguing over who gets to go in gender neutral bathrooms and how like there's going to be men masquerading as women, just like whipping their dicks out in like women's bathroom. <laughs> like that's like a concern in the United States. When in reality, the concern is who is murdered the most in terms of like hate crimes, black trans women, right? Who are you the most scared of in this world? People of color who also gender identify in a way that is not Western, that is not acceptable. So we could say a lot more about this and it'll come up a little bit more as we go through the episode today, but I wanted to mark this like somewhere near the top um, that this is going on and that it's a major issue and that it's bullshit that FIFA didn't do anything about it. And moreover, I mean, it's bullshit that people are still watching the World Cup, like just like not saying anything about it. We've seen in the United States, Colin Kaepernick take, take a knee and we've seen, you know, LeBron James come out and say things recently about like, fuck y'all for um, conflating anti-Semitism with blackness, right? Just because Kanye and Kyrie have like said or done ignorant shit. Oh, now all black people are anti-Semitic, right? Um, in the United States, we oftentimes will see athletes come out and take a stand. I haven't seen anybody take a knee at the World Cup or be like, I'm not playing because y'all hate gay people and y'all hate trans people. Yeah. And and you can, you'll get what was it, a yellow card or you, you can't. Well, first it was a yellow card. And then yellow I said card. they were, I think they said they were going to find people. And then I think eventually they said they were going to eject people. Right. So um, I don't think any players actually did that. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to one of my clients about this recently in like a diversity committee meeting. I think we forget when we're having this conversation that like your sexual orientation and to some extent your gender identity is not something you wear on your sleeve, right? Like people can't see it the same way that they can see race all the time. And so there are certainly a whole bunch of gay soccer players, gay, you know, male identifying soccer players um, and I'm not even addressing the trans component of this or like anything else, um, but I'm just going to like stay here for a second, who are not out or are hiding their sexual orientation and having to go out there and play for their countries silently because of fear of not being protected, of being fined, imprisoned, whatever it might be. And I, again, want to say like, it's fucked up that this is happening in Qatar, but like this is happening globally, right? Like this is not just a Qatari issue. Like this is how we treat LGBTQIA plus people writ large. Um, some places have better treatment than others, but like this is a global trend. This is not just like Qatar, you're fucked up. I mean, Qatar, you are fucked up. Like this is bullshit. But, you know, I just think about the players who are gay and are hiding this massive piece of their identity amidst this hatred that is being spewed while they're just trying to do their jobs, right? Like this is their job. They play soccer for a living. 
so I, I just, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine and to some extent I can, because we all hide pieces of ourselves when we're trying to work, whether it's, you know, race related or not. But I just think it's so fucked up that that conversation hasn't been had. Like there are real people on these pitches who are impacted by this, not just fans, et cetera. Yeah. And I think FIFA, they were just trying to position it. Oh, it's just soccer, right? It's not soccer now. <laughs> like that's you, always a retort, right? Like, like let's just like ignore everything else that's going on, the history behind how we got here. It's just soccer. Just enjoy the show. But it's not yeah. now. Politics values are now intertwined. It's almost like FIFA had they just caved into the pressure of the Qatari government. I mean, they absolutely did, and it's no mistake that FIFA is a white-led, white-run organization with headquarters in Switzerland, which is one of the whitest places on the planet. The official languages of FIFA are English, French, Spanish, and German. Don't worry, I'll wait. I'm not seeing any African countries (laughs) represented in the lingual pool, except through colonization, no Asian countries, et cetera. FIFA is very white, and it's it's always very convenient for white countries with a history of enslavement, racism, um, colonization, imperialism, et cetera, to be like, oh, that's the hit. That's the, that's the past. Like that's why it's, it's just soccer. It's just, it's just yeah. a ball. We're just kicking balls around, right? Just kicking balls. Because it doesn't impact them. It's not their lived experience. They don't have parents or family members who are and were impacted by this shit. So it's just like, that's the whitest shit ever. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't. So the current FIFA president, his name is Gianni Infantino. So on the eve before World Cup, there was a press conference and he used an example of pure racism to draw attention away from all of the issues happening in Qatar. What do you mean by that? Can you break that down? Like, what does that mean? Oh, deflecting all of the human indecencies that's happening, that has happened over the last 12 years to, to racism. So what you're saying is he was like, oh, like, why are we talking about the potentially 6,500 people who have died in Qatar in the past 12 years? Like when like there's real racism we could be concerned with? No, he's no, he's saying that everybody else is being racist by. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yes. Like, why are you bringing this up? You're racist. Correct. Yes. You're being racist. (laughs) So he also. I'm sorry to laugh. The same press conference equated him being bullied for having red hair and freckles to being sent to prison for being gay and dying while working to build the stadiums in Qatar. He actually Y'all can't said, see my face right now, but my eyeballs are about to fall out of their socket. <laughs> those <laughs> words came out of his mouth during this press conference. Well, I mean, are we surprised though? Because like, think about it. Every time we have a conversation about racism in the United States where white people are present, there's always someone raising their hand and hooting and fucking hollering about how like, white people are poor and have hard lives too, right? I mean, let us not forget my white supremacist ex, Adam, who we are now calling out by name and I will continue. <laughs> to do Hi, Adam. I hope Hi, you enjoyed this episode. Um, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's like so nuts. He'll try and like sue me for defamation or something. Um, anyways, he literally said to me, and I fucking quote, that Eminem's life was hard too when Mm -hmm. I was talking about anti-Black racism. That is what this man said to me. And so, like, that's always the thing, right? It's like, well, I could be discriminated against because I have freckles and red hair. Like, shut the fuck up. Shut up. Shut up. Oh, God. I mean, the history of FIFA's response to racism has been pretty trash throughout the years anyways. I think one of the 
first and most notable player walk-offs was in 2013 by AC Milan player Kevin Prince Botong. And what uh, happened? So basically the fans were just abusing him, just <laughs> chanting expletives during the game. And the fact that this can happen or it has been happening for years and nothing has been done, it's just overlooked or it's just part of whatever, it's just part of the game, is insane. So anyways, in 2013, he walked off the field. He was fully supported by a lot of politicians, peers, except at the time, and I know you're going to talk about this guy in a little bit, Sepp Platter was the head of FIFA. And he went on record, he went on record and said, walking off the field in the face of racist abuse, um, as AC Milan did last week, is not the solution to the problem. He said that in response to that. What's what's the what is, fucking solution? What is wrong Seth? with these people? What is wrong oh with God, these so people? So much, Christina. Christina, so much. We know that the answer to that question is so much. It hurts. Um, it hurts. I I also think we're gonna call this episode football trash because you have that in the notes. The people, um, but the fact that they yeah. And they feel it's okay to say these things on record, not even on background. You're going to say this in a press conference. You're going to go on record with a statement saying this is like mind blowing. He was just, he was literally just quoted in these articles as it was just, I mean, and then just moving (laughs) along, right? Like moving right along next. And that's why they continue to do this is because like white men have historically been able to say these things and have no repercussions. Like, they get a slap on the wrist, if that, and we keep it pushing. Like, next, it's, that's why, of course. Of course, that's the response, because that's always been the response. Um, All right, why don't you get, why don't we talk about Seth a little bit more? Yeah, well, I put a huge picture in our outline of Seth Butter's, like, really <laughs> oh, I wanted face. to delete it. It's literally taking up, one, like, an entire page, and this man's face is just, ugh. Uh, well, I didn't because I just wanted to see the the whiteness peering at me <laughs> under his spectacles. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. Um. So you know, Seth Blatter. There's like a. Whole, I'm not even gonna get into the drama of him because I mean he is no longer um, FIFA's president for a lot of reasons. He was deeply involved in the drama that happened um, over the past decade and led to a lot of the shit we're seeing today, um, you know, bribes and world cups, you know, bids 50% of world cup officials or world cup voters, essentially the people who are responsible for, um, deciding where the next world cups are going to be being fined or imprisoned or whatever it might be. Um, he was deeply involved in that, but for the purposes of today, the reason I want to talk about him is because Seth Blatter was the president of FIFA when the world cup was awarded. Um, in 2010, right? So when FIFA got the bid for the 2022 World Cup that's currently happening, Sepp Blatter was president of FIFA. And he recently, like, I think around the beginning of this World Cup, uh, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, he told a Swiss newspaper um, that Qatar is a mistake and said the choice was bad. Now, if you just read that, there might be a lot of reasons that you would think he's saying that, right? You might be thinking like, there was so much bribery happening in FIFA at the time. We couldn't make sure the process was clear and not influenced by, by the bribes and all the like other bullshit that was happening, right? But that is not why Seth Blatter said this. Blatter, who led 
FIFA for 17 years. And I do not think it's a mistake that his last name rhymes with a part of the human body that we do not like to talk about publicly. Um, he said that Qatar is, and I quote, too small of a country. Football and the World Cup are too big for it. Now, this is the former president of FIFA, who was president when Qatar was given the bid, saying of the first country in the Middle East to host the World Cup, that it's too small of a country and that football, the entire sport of soccer and the World Cup, the world's preeminent stage for global soccer, are too big for a country like Qatar. Show me something more fucking racist. Show me something more Islamophobic from a region of the world that is historically Islamophobic as fuck. I just, like, fuck you, Sepp Blatter, you racist old man, and fuck everyone else for not making this a headline story. This should have been on the little ticker taper thing on the bottom of Fox and CNN and wherever the fuck else we've been watching the World Cup for the entire time this tournament was happening. And this is why I said at the top, it can both be true that the attacks on Qatar are racist and that Qatar is being racist, right? Like both of those things can be true at the same time. This would not have been said about a small white country. Like let's say Ireland got the bid for the World Cup. This wouldn't have been the commentary. This wouldn't have been the commentary for another country that did not have the racial, ethnic, religious makeup that Qatar has. And so instead of apologizing for being a corrupt piece of shit and a racist, Seth Blatter is apologizing for, in his estimation, picking a country that is not equipped to host the World Cup, right? And to make matters worse, he then went into what is a real issue, which is the human considerations, right? Human rights considerations. But I think it's really important to point out here, like these considerations weren't talked about nearly as loudly when South Africa was hosting the World Cup or when Brazil, places with Black people, were hosting the World Cup. How many people died building stadiums in Brazil, right? They were clearing rainforest and jungle in some places, to, to build stadiums, not everywhere, not all of Brazil is jungle or rainforest, to be clear. Um, but I'm sure people died of all sorts of shit. Same thing in South Africa, right? And there were major concerns in South Africa or Brazil. And I was in South Africa right before, well, after they got the bid for the World Cup, but about two years before the World Cup was hosted there. And the country was already chirping in anticipation of the World Cup. And it was a major strain on the country's infrastructure to provide all sorts of other stuff, right? You have to think you're spending billions of dollars on stadiums and new hotels and whatever. What is that money not going to? I know in Brazil, for example, there were complaints that the money wasn't going to their healthcare services, that people were waiting in line and dying in line for emergency rooms. And right next to the emergency room that these people are dying in line waiting for, there's a soccer stadium being built. So my point here is it's interesting when we choose to have these conversations. It's interesting who we choose to attack. Um, and it's interesting when we choose not to have these conversations. And apparently, Black lives <laughs> weren't important enough to talk about on the global stage. Um, I do think we should be having this conversation about Qatar, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's an either-or proposition. But I also think we need to be having the conversation about, like, why didn't this happen before? Why didn't we talk about this before? The other thing here, like, to say is just, you know... Has this not been an issue at World Cups hosted in locations where the host country is not a brown, non-Christian country, right? Are you telling me that, like, people have never been treated like shit in, I don't know, the United States or France or any of the white countries that have hosted the World Cup? Why wasn't this a major issue then? 
right? Um, so just something to think about, like, there is no black and white to this. I mean, there is, but like, there is no black and white in terms of who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. People are saying and doing racist shit, but like, Qatar can also be racist and be experiencing racism and Islamophobia. And we need to be capable of having both of those conversations or those multi that multitude of conversations that are nuanced at the same time. That's it. That's all I have to say about that. Do you remember Otsal? Do you remember mm-hmm. who he is? Mm-hmm. Okay, he's one of my favorite soccer players. He was like a, I'm, I'm pretty sure he played, it's been forever. I'm pretty sure he played like center mid, like wing, like winger. But I mean, just like, he's like, he was like a little, just on his, just, he was graceful as hell. Um, German born, um, Turkish uh, by ethnicity, um, soccer player. He still, I believe, is playing in Turkey, but he retired um, from the German national team. Um, I mean, he was one of like the major like impact players for Germany for years, like when their team was just so scarily good. Uh, And he became even more famous than he already was because of racism in Germany that he received from fans, particularly um, from the country kind of broadly. Um, For any of you listening, if you've been to Germany and you've been to major cities in Germany, you've probably seen protests protest signs, anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-Turkish sentiment. There are a lot of Turkish immigrants in Germany. And Ozil is famous for having said when he quit, when he resigned from the German national team, I am a German when we win, but I'm an immigrant when we lose. And he received all sorts of racist treatment. Um, I think Islamophobic treatment, you know, I don't even know if he's Muslim, but I know that some of the, um, the stuff that has been said about or towards him um, was anti-Islam. And it's interesting how this came up during this World Cup. Um, And this, I think, goes to prove the point of like, you can be racist and subject to racism or the victim of racism at the same time. So when Qatar started getting shit for being homophobic um, and for banning the armbands and pride flags and reporters who they knew um, were supportive of LGBTQIA plus rights, et cetera, Fans started showing up to stadiums with posters of Mesut Ozil, right, of his face and his face with his hand over his mouth. And the reason this is relevant is because German soccer players who wanted to wear their pride armbands, they in protest put their hands over their mouth saying like FIFA, you're being silent on something that you should be standing up for. So in response, a whole bunch of Qatari fans, essentially, and I think a lot of fans um, who were in support of Qatar's stance, regardless, show up at the stadiums with these these posters of Ozil. And they show up at the stadium with these posters and they put their hands over their mouth. And what they were saying is, it's interesting that you have something to say now because you didn't have anything to say when people were being racist against Ozil, who is from Turkey and who is personified as kind of the Muslim world, right? And it was such an interesting inflection point because like the two things can coexist, right? Like it can be really fucked up and like racist that Germany was racist towards Ozil and also homophobic as fuck that German fans and German players are not allowed to wear pride armbands, right? Um, And so just the way that this has become conflated and it's like this either or proposition, like either you support Qatar full stop, right? Like either like you're pro Qatar all the way or you're racist, or you support Germany and whoever, it's just 
kind of fascinating that like human brains don't have the capacity to like understand that there's room for both of of these teams right or of these things so just a point yeah. like look it up if you if you want to see it there's lots of pictures of it yeah and and also the point of like loving black players when they're mm. doing well <laughs> <laughs> There's a similar, uh, there's a similar, um, it reminds me of, um, so there's a, there's a great opinion piece at the New York Times about the France team that's kind of chronicled the, the journey of the France team because most of them are black at this point. Right. So. Yeah. Which is like wild. (laughs) Which is wild. So um, in the piece, Kareem Benzema, um, who's one of France's star strikers, said in 2011 when i score in french when i don't or when there's a problem i'm arab and it just reminds me of day you know i love this commercial the the beast by dre commercial um oh, yeah love which me. if you haven't like go it. on youtube and watch YouTube. that it's so good say it again so, what's the name of it p it's love me yeah. so basically the commercial is calling out how society loves black bodies you love our talent you love our strength but do you actually love us and this is what's happening to a lot of Black players historically, not even just in World Cup, just historically throughout Euro Leagues, throughout FIFA. This has been an issue historically um, forever. And it's still happening now, which is crazy. It's given, crazy, but it's like also par for the course, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You love I mean, us for what we bring to the game. But you don't love us. You don't really like, love us, though. You don't us, love us. You don't yeah. love us. You love us when we when we perform well, when we do the dance and the jig, right? Like, and that's the thing. That's the same with like professional sports in the United States, right? Like people love black NFL players and black basketball players when they're playing basketball and when they're playing football, right? But the when second they do anything, yeah. And the second they do anything off screen that's less than savory, it's because they're black and the racism comes out, right? And so I think this is just such a common theme worldwide um the idea that black people are only as good as their performance right like black people are only as good as how they perform for you how they dance for you past that there's no need or use for them and i think that can be extended to you know brown people uh with Otsal, same example like the words that you just said were almost exactly the same with benzema right like exactly so i just it's it's fascinating. And I think this leads like perfectly, the segues perfectly into a conversation about like how are World Cup teams comprised or like composed. And I say this like both in mocking and seriously, because I just like <laughs> but when we were watching when we started watching the World Cup in Italy and oh seeing these God. teams, we're like, where did all these black people come from? <laughs> Saudi Arabia came out and like I was like why is your entire team black like and not like like dark-skinned like Saudis like black people where did you get them they come from right and like the same is true of like France it's like you only have black people by virtue of your colonization of Africa so like this is an interesting conversation to have like where the fuck did all these black people and brown people on these teams come from and it's even more interesting when you look at african teams particularly african teams who fucking killed it this world cup like morocco who's shout out in to africa morocco. right they just lost hella brown place. people okay. yeah i know which was like really sad um really sad. i really wanted morocco to like take it mm-hmm. all and i wanted them specifically to like slay france because fuck colonialism fuck colonization but um 
I think it's it's fascinating that uh, a team like Morocco has what I am assuming are mostly Moroccan players by birth, um, just based on skin color. Like they're light skinned, um, North African. Part of the reason they're so light skinned is because of mixture with the colonial uh, forces. But they didn't have like a whole bunch of like darker skinned Africans from elsewhere on the continent. Yet these other teams like France have like, I don't know what the percentage is. I'm guessing France's team is at least 60% black, maybe more. Um, yeah. So it's just like such an interesting thing. And it led me to like have a couple conversations. And, and just shut up. And, <laughs> and to like look into like how does one qualify for a seat, not other than skill, obviously, I mean, racially, ethnically, national origin wise, how does one qualify for a spot, I should say, on a World Cup team? And it's really fucking confusing. So I do not recommend like looking it up online. What I had been told, what I had heard was you have to either um, be a permanent national, permanent, like you have to like change your passport essentially to be from that country or have one grandparent who was born in that country. Now, I believe the one grandparent rule was changed recently, but honestly, it's unclear. And here's why I'm going to read like a couple lines from the um, general principles in the the FIFA like bylaws or what the fuck ever. So in Article 5.1, it says any person holding a permanent nationality that is not dependent on residence in a certain country is eligible to play for the representative teams of the association of that country. Right. So if you're national, like your passport says you're from there, you can play. If you're a permanent resident, though, like if you were like on a green card in the United States, for example, um, but you hadn't become a citizen yet, you couldn't play. So that's I think. And and I'm a lawyer here, so like I would hope that I like am somewhat decent at interpreting things like this, but like who the fuck knows? Um, so the previous rule before this stated that players who are not born in the territory or in the country and had no parents or grandparents born in the country, they hold a nationality and must have lived there continuously for at least five years after the age of 18. That would have made it so that you would not be able to play until you were 23 if you didn't have a grandparent or parent born there. And we all know 23 is late in your soccer career. Um, I mean, it might be young to start playing on a World Cup team because, you know, a lot of the players are like 20, 21, 22 when they start playing. Um, But just interesting. That rule apparently came under scrutiny when Qatar won the Asian Cup in 2019 and the UAE started questioning the eligibility of one of Qatar's star players. Um, So there's been all this drama going on about like how you can play on a team under FIFA rules. The new wording apparently of FIFA's regulations says that as well as living somewhere for five years after the age of 18, players who started living in a country before the age of 10 can be eligible after living there for three years. So you'd be able to start playing at 20 instead of 23. Um, But it's just all this to say it's fucking confusing. So either permanent nationality, like, is that country, you've become a citizen, so to speak, of that country, or perhaps having a grandparent um, or a parent from that country, or having been in the territory for a minimum of five years or three years, depending on how you interpret this, and not having a grandparent or a parent. So the reason we bring this up is like this is how people who are not from the country get to play for the team and i'm not making a statement that like if you're black you shouldn't play for france or saudi arabia like there are certainly black people in all regions of the world right like people who have been born and raised in countries that are like very white or that are very whatever else it might be all i'm saying is like i think it's really interesting how black 
players and athletes are mined for the World Cup specifically um, from countries that no one wants anything else to do with, except for every four years when the World Cup is happening, right? Um, or except for when you're trying to like field a team like in the Champions League or the Euro League or whatever it might be. Yeah, um, bring in the like, ringers. That's right. Exactly. Right. And the ringers are fucking African because shout out to, to the motherland. But um, it's just, it's fucking interesting. Related, the, related to this, really, it's like some other like, racist fucking absurd shenanigans happening at the World Cup. And like Christina watched me watch this in real time and lose my fucking mind repeatedly. Racist ass headdresses were a thing in this World Cup. And I'm not talking about people wearing um, the Gutra, which uh, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, um, which is a Middle Eastern headdress worn by men. Uh, we'll t- get to that in a minute. I'm talking about people wearing indigenous American headdresses at the World Cup um, in the colors of their country's team. So like I saw Italian and French and apparently American uh, or US fans wearing headdresses, Indian headdresses with like feathers on them. And they're not, you know, it's, it's offensive to even call them fucking Indian headdresses because these are like monstrosities with like fake feathers and like looking like this is not Indian. It's like a, an attempt at an Indian headdress. Um, but you know, this was a thing. So Christina, what are you, what is the photo that like I have up on the screen that you're looking at right now? Like, how would you describe American white fan in a red, white, and blue Indian headdress. And it's really embarrassing. And like the headband. It's disgusting. Yeah. The the stars and stripes on the headband and like, it's wild. Right. So like this dude has done in like full on, like what is supposed to be spiritual, ceremonial, religious attire for indigenous tribes um and i mean i'm sure right of course and i'm sure i'm sure there are tribes that don't wear headdresses right because indians are not one like huge flat category as we like to treat them um they are separate sovereign nations or countries um but this is a thing and at first i saw like a lot of italian fans and a lot of french fans doing this um but then there were american fans as well and what this means is that like the stadiums like the vendors we're selling this as something you could buy to wear in your country's color at the game. So I can't believe like when I was researching for today's episode, this was really difficult to find pictures of, even though I watched it. I mean, P, how many games do you think we watched when we were in Sardinia? At least like six, eight, probably like a lot of games. I saw this every game, every game, you know, when they're zooming into the, the stands, I saw fans at every game, particularly fans from white countries uh, doing this. And I do suspect that, like, I, I suspect this is happening writ large, but I do suspect this is more common in white countries because countries that are brown that have their own cultural apparel are probably like, oh, that's fucking racist. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Right. Um, for those who, like, know that this comes from indigenous headwear. But also, it was wild. U.S. fans are just embarrassing in general. I, which... <laughs> Also, I just want to put a plug in for fuck the United States. <laughs> U.S. fans are gross and disgusting. They were chanting, "It's called soccer." I'm covering it's my head. It's called soccer. Well, nope. Only to us. <laughs> <laughs> like the gall of like right. the the United right. States to be like, call it what we call it. Um, it's like if you want to call it soccer, call it soccer. But like, why are you trying to make the rest of the world call it soccer? No, it's not called soccer, actually. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't. I fucking can't. I love I it can't. here. <laughs> <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> um, I mean, one more thing with on the headdress line of 
conversation here is so headdresses indigenous to the region where the world cup was this year right so indigenous to the middle east and indigenous to qatar specifically um were being worn a lot at the world cup both by qataris and other people from the region and by white people (laughs) and so there's this interesting conversation that's happening um, about whether this is cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation and from what I've seen and what I heard in commentary, a lot of people um, who are from the region, who are Qatari or who are Middle Eastern are like, we don't care. This is cool. I'm sure there is a counter narrative, right? Like, I'm sure there are people who are like, take our shit off. <laughs> like, why are you wearing that? But the Gutra, um, oftentimes also, I think, confused with, but like called the Kafaya. Um, I think those are actually two different things. It is a large piece of cloth that is put on top of your head and then tied with rope, essentially. Uh, and it's essentially a garment that is worn because of how hot uh, it is and how just you know direct the sun is um, in the region, regularly over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And you know, this is something that that white people were wearing a lot. So like, it, 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 it's interesting to me to <laughs> to see this picture that like I put in our outline that um, is these two like white dudes who I think I saw this guy in an interview too, the guy on the right holding cups of beer, which like, I'm not even going to get into the, like the, the, the culture stadium? clash. I thought they were outside of, no, oh, this is outside of a stadium okay. at a vendor, I think. Yeah. Because I think they were selling beer in the stadium. I think it was just not American beer. I think that's what oh, Budweiser. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like American <laughs> or European beer. They were like, it's our country. Like we're going to sell fu- like shit that's from the region. I could be wrong. So correct us if that's incorrect, which is absolutely fine. I, like, can you I'm imagine okay the World that. Cup being in the United States and people being like, oh, like, you know, you have to sell beer from fucking Qatar in the U.S. Like, I just, Wait, I it's that, wild. It was like, for some reason, I thought they weren't allowed to drink. Well, if you are Muslim religious and not just if you're muslim if you're muslim and you follow certain traditions within islam you're not supposed to drink but not all qataris are muslim right um that being said i'm not sure what the state of the no, law there's, legally is there's in no Qatar. alcohol no no alcohol in the country at eight stadiums yeah well okay at the stadiums but what i'm saying is depending on what the state of the law is in the country that's what's going to determine whether or not you can consume alcohol period and in a lot of countries you can consume alcohol but if you are muslim religiously speaking you're not supposed you're to not, yeah. it's like the same way in the united states like you're not supposed to get an abortion if you're catholic but a lot of people still do so <laughs> like, wow, that was very extreme was it, is it? <laughs> i don't know if it is i feel like it's you know I feel like it's the real world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, like the sale of alcohol and consumption of alcohol is going to be controlled by the legal system in, in that country. And I'm not entirely sure what it is in Qatar. But I kind of think it's like smart for them to not sell alcohol in stadiums because like people do wild shit. <laughs> like drunk at soccer games. I mean, like, I love it. Seen... I love drinking at games. Oh, I do too. But like, I love drinking. But, you do love drinking. Christina, <laughs> who is known to cheers herself on a bottle while she is pouring more wine into her glass. Um, we all know I love drinking as well. But my point is, people do nutsy shit at soccer games. Like, I mean, we've all seen like Manchester United fans go absolutely ape shit while they're on their tenth pint and like just start a violent row um, after a soccer game. So uh, it's not that surprising, even aside from religion, why a country might not want to sell alcohol in a stadium. 
Okay. So I can't answer the question. I don't think Christina can answer the question either. I mean, I guess what, what's your, what do you think? Is that cultural appropriation or is it cultural appreciation? The headdresses? Yeah. Not the Indian headdresses, the, um, the, uh, it's all the same thing. The no, it's, it's, all, it's so? all the same thing. Yeah. I think it's all the do same Do you think thing. it matters though? Like what Qatari like... people are saying about it? Like, do, do you think it's relevant? Like if, if Qatari people are like, it's cool, wear our shit, is it still cultural appropriation? Maybe, perhaps not, but I feel like people who are wearing those items aren't really, it's not purposeful. They're just doing it as dress up. Yeah, it's not like to like actually appreciate the culture. It's not, no, it's, it's literally a costume. Yeah, which I mean, I, I'm, I'm confused. Like, I'm genuinely confused, like, about my feelings on this. Like, I think because indigenous um, indigenous americans have like very vocally said like do not wear headdresses like that's just fucking racist right because they've said like stop wearing our religious shit there is a difference also between like this the kufaya the gutra and an indian headdress and religion is part of it to my understanding or to my knowledge this sort of of headwear is because of the elements because of the weather and not tied to the practice of a religion, right? Um, similar to like wearing a sari in India, like tied to the weather, um, tied to the fact that it is like hot as hell and, you know, you want something breathable, but also that covers your body and like whatever. Um, so I do think it's it, it's different than wearing um, a headdress. But at the same time, I, I I wonder similarly to you, like are people doing this to res- to be like, hey, I'm in your country and I very much respect your culture, which I do think there were some people who were doing that based on the interviews that I heard, but I doubt that that is the majority of people who are doing it. Americans just based on like what I know about respect. trash humans. Yeah. <laughs> Christina says Americans weren't doing that. <laughs> yo, yo, if y'all have been we're looking not. for, like if, if anybody who's listening to this is like, I don't even want to bring politics into this. So like, how can I phrase this? If anybody who is listening into, into this podcast is like looking for someone who really hates America and you want to be mad at them, it's Christina. <laughs> She's here. I mean, she is the anti-patriot. <laughs> the thing is, Deidre, if you and I went over there, if we were there, we would not wear that. There's no oh, way. No. There's no Absolutely way. Not. Also, women that. don't wear them. But like, women don't wear them. But, but like, no, no, I'm not wearing that. I'm like, I'm not going to take... Like, I'm not going to take a thing and wear it at your World Cup as, like, a costume. I have worn a sari before. I wore a sari to a wedding. A wedding. That was, That's like, different. formal evening gown attire. That is different. Um, that is different. But, yeah, this is really interesting to me. Um, okay. So, moving along from that, because that's, like, a whole clusterfuck that we're not going to resolve. Moving on to more racism. <laughs> we're not wearing we costumes. Ethnic costumes. What else did we talk about? We're not doing that. Race and resilience, but more racism. So Christina brought up like how black France's World Cup team is. And I thought it was really interesting at the end of the France-Morocco game where like I wanted to cry because I really wanted Morocco to win. The like saving grace for me, like the 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 redeeming factor was like when the France team was celebrating and they were in their huddle at the end of the game. And Mbappe and like Giroud Mbappe. were like making out because like they're obsessed with each other. Oh my god, those pictures! Um, I was obsessed with those so pictures. So funny! They're so funny. I love them. So, um, can we I'm normalize the kind of guy that looks like, at me like that too? Right. Exactly. Can we normalize men though, just like touching, like without it having to like go down any path other than like and just, gazing like, at each other longingly? Yeah, expressing joy and love. Um, yeah. So, anyways, one of the redeeming things 
that made me not like extremely upset was that France's team is so black. And like, I was just like the, in a country like France, where there's a fuck ton of Islamophobia and racism, despite the fact that France is like, we're all one nation. And like, we don't take racial demography. And like, so we can't be racist lies. Um, I was really happy to see how black and brown that team is. And I'm fine. <laughs> what, <see? laughs> Um, so if anybody <laughs> is curious, Christina is a single and ready to mingle. And... <laughs> oh my God. She said, and fine. I literally can't. Um, so the point of this is France has historically struggled with accepting immigrants. Like a lot of countries in Europe have, right. There is a constant, there, the constant drumbeat of xenophobia uh, Islamophobia, specifically in France, and ethnocentrism, in the same way that there is in the United States, but like with Black people, mostly. <laughs> um, but it's it's just interesting because I think this this win um, leading France to be in the World Cup finals, uh, the semifinals win, has been seen by many, particularly because of the makeup of the French team currently, the French national team currently, as a strike against racism in the country, right? As something redeeming. Um, so P said earlier that Karim Benzema um, said in 2011, when I score, I'm French, when I don't, or when there's a problem, I'm Arab, right? And what he means by that, like, French equals good, Arab equals bad, right? And I get attacked, and I get racialized when I do something bad. So I just, I think it's interesting to point out, like, or not point out, but to bring into to, to conversation, like, what does it mean that France's team is so black? What does it mean that, that they've, you they've know, struggled with? bringing Black players yeah. throughout history. So apparently in yeah. 2010, the leadership of the French Football Federation discussed a plan to limit the number of players of African and North African descent. Like, Y'all would not be in the finals right now if that had been successful. <laughs> and this goes back to like being recruited at the youth level. So not yeah, even I like... Mean, these kids are like 12 when they are, you know, starting to be, or even earlier when they're starting to be scouted. But... 12, 13, 14, when they go and live in other countries and are in academies and whatever. So you're going to have those discussions starting at the youth level? Really? This is what we're doing? Well, it is. I mean, racializing young brown and black men is like the, is, is colonization's favorite thing to do. Facts. Like, yeah, like, I mean, come on. Like, this is why Tamir Rice, who was 11, was shot dead by police for playing with a toy gun in a fucking park because, like, the hyper racialization of young black boys like you're a threat because you're black or brown and you are a man even if you're 11 like yeah they love like this is the prime age for starting this shit like it's how it works but look at them now right look at them now aren't you glad you didn't succeed in that france you fuckers um i also think it's interesting though and i think we have to point out and would be remiss and also just like bad at running a podcast about race if we didn't talk about this france in true form put out a cartoon and i am saying cartoon mostly in jest because like in the same way that like i don't think like racist jokes are jokes because they're not fucking funny um france has a history of like putting out really racist and islamophobic cartoons right i'm sure many of you remember the charlie abdo um the charlie abdo attacks where um a bunch of French journalists, 2015, were murdered in an attack by terrorists who happened to be Muslim, because I am no longer using Muslim terrorists as a uh, phrase. Um, and so two 
two men um, who are brothers forced their way into the offices of the French satirical weekly newspaper, Charlie Hebdo in Paris. They murdered 12 people and injured 11 others. Well, part of the story that's missing there um, almost always is what French journalists and French newspapers publish. And they are oftentimes extremely racist imagery um, showing Muslim people in particular as terrorists, murderers, um, as all sorts of terrible things that no human wants to be associated with. Does this excuse two brothers going in and murdering people? Absolutely the fuck not, right? Um, it doesn't. But I think it's really important to point out that this is something that like is very normal in France. Like if this happened in the United States to this extent, at least in a newspaper, it would be a fucking shitstorm. Um, and at the World Cup, France did it again. And um, I forget which newspaper it was. It doesn't really matter, to be honest. But they put out, air quote, cartoons of Qatari soccer players wearing jerseys that have long sleeves um, and cover the entire body, essentially. Um, face masks that you would associate with, like, ski masks, essentially, with, like, robbers, bank robbers, or Al-Qaeda. And a guy who looks like, I can only say Osama bin Laden because that's literally who he looks like with, you know, an overly um, exaggerated nose and carrying machine guns and missiles. And these are soccer players, right? And this is how the Qatari team and Qatar is being represented. There are similar representations of the Moroccan team. One of the things that they did with the Moroccan team was showed them running away with or stealing the World Cup, the golden, like, actual cup from the French team. Because how else would Muslim majority country win something other than to steal it um, because that is of course the racial trope in France um, so I point this out just to show like there's a fuck ton of racism that was happening at the World Cup and is still happening um, and it's normal like this isn't just because it's the World Cup like this is something that you will see in France on a normal basis um, another really similar thing fucking Black Pete in the Netherlands um, the Netherlands has a really long and fucked up Christmas tradition of um, black helpers, essentially, for Santa being dressed in, I think it's like Moorish clothing. And I'm looking at a picture right now. Christina, how would you describe this picture that we're looking at? It's like almost jesterish, like. Yeah, like court jester, it's jester, black, jester it's jesters. Like, um, jester. It's like black face jesters. So we're looking at candy. Imagine like a clear tube of M&Ms. And you know how sometimes you can buy them with little like cartoon figures on top, right? For Christmas stockings or whatever. Well, some of them have like very white stately Catholic or Christian Santa on top, right? And then next to them are these images in fucking blackface with the huge lips like protruding and like black blackface, like not like dark brown, like black, like wow. tar blackface dressed in what I think is traditional Moorish clothing is what it's supposed to be. Um, and this is Black Pete, right? This is, or Zuarte Piet. Um, and this is very common in the country. You know, I've been to the Netherlands quite a few times and you'll see around this time of year at Christmas markets, et cetera, candy like this. You'll also see Black Santa, but it's not Black Santa. It's Blackface Santa um, because that's what Black Pete is. And you will see uh, people dressed in blackface uh, wearing this Moorish clothing. Uh, and they go to soccer games dressed like this. And this has been a thing in the Netherlands for a long time. 
Um, and I bring this up because it's racist as hell and it goes along with um, the French tradition of being racist as hell and Islamophobic as hell in um, news coverage um, and in depictions of people who are not white Western Europeans, right? Um, this is particularly relevant to soccer because it has been a feature of a lot of Dutch soccer games in 2019, a black soccer player was jeered off the field um, when fans started chanting Black Pete. They actually stopped the game. His name was not Black Pete for the record. And, you know, the crowd essentially like turned on him. Uh, so just, you know, the, this tradition of racism in soccer, um, there's a tradition of racism globally. We talk about this all the time, but there's also like a very specific tradition of racism in soccer. It's really common for bananas to be thrown at Black players on the soccer field, uh, like, and for Black soccer players to be called monkeys all sorts of shit. So there's just like a really nasty history of this happening and continuing to happen like to present day uh, that I think probably a lot of American, a lot of Western sports fans aren't aware of because we have so many black athletes, like they're the majority in a lot of our major sports, football, basketball, no one in the United States gives a shit about soccer. Um, so, you know, if you threw like bananas at LeBron James, he would probably like charge into the, the, the fucking stance and be like, I'll show you fucking King Kong bitch. Like that's probably what would happen. And he but, would get away with it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in Europe, that is not what happens. Um, so just it's something important to, to point out here. Uh, anything I missed and anything you can think of, Pete, like when it comes to like racist incidents that you've seen like with soccer, because like this is just so common. Like it's something that happens all the fucking time. Um, I mean, again, I'll just go back to the fact that fans have been allowed to abuse players like this in the stands. Like even today, like, yeah. it's scary. What do you mean it's by allowed? Break that down. When you say allowed, there are what no do you mean? rules. There are no rules. Um, FIFA did come out with some type of statement against um i mean they had to right they released a statement um i believe it was around the murder of george floyd so they released their performative statement um yeah what the fuck did that say <laughs> i'll read it and the fact that they might as well just have not come out with this at this point fifa fully understands well, the depth of sentiment and concerns expressed by many footballers in light of the tragic dis circumstances of the george floyd case mind you there's been a lot that's happened to players on the field before George Floyd. Yeah. I mean, this also is, the George Floyd case. It wasn't like, the George Floyd case. It was whatever the fuck that guy's name is, Derek Chauvin. And it's he, not the George Floyd case. It was the murder of George Floyd. It was the murder. It was the murder. So the fact that they released this prior, like so many, I mean, it had to come down to the George Floyd killing. Like clearly this has been happening for years. Abusing players, yeah. fans abusing players, players abusing players. Um, and there was players, no rules. And players there. abusing players is a lie. Like, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not always fans throwing bananas. It's like oftentimes players or even coaches. I think a coach threw bananas on the field recently. Like, it's people who are involved in the sport, not just like racist ass fans. Yeah. And for any of you who don't know why it's racist, like for bananas to be thrown at black soccer players, there's a very long history of black people being equated to monkeys, monkeys um, yeah. Michelle Obama and Barack Obama were like satirized as monkeys. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly common for black people to be referred to as monkeys, to be drawn with features similar to those of monkeys, whether it's a tail, whether it's big ears, whatever it might be. So the bananas have like a very significant part of 
history of racism against Black people, both in sport and not in sport, but it is incredibly common in Europe um, and in European soccer for bananas to be thrown on the field at Black players. And even online, right? So there's been a huge increase of racism on Twitter targeting Black players during the World Cup um, because you can freely just say whatever you want. Um, The N-word is just being thrown out there loosely yeah um well what was it there was like a 900 percent increase or some shit like the day after yeah. Elon Musk took over uh in racism on twitter so like this is again par for the course par for the course yes okay so what i want to end on is like the most positive note i could think of for this really depressing shit <laughs> um which is like how does equity play into the world cup and i actually started thinking about this when i was doing a training for those of you who don't know, like I'm a diversity consultant. And so I go in and talk about identity, race, racism, et cetera. And as you can tell from the podcast, oftentimes in like a very um, experience forward, my lived experience and real way, like I'm not going to sit there and like pat you on the back, like while you do racist shit and I'm not going to not talk about whiteness and like whatever. But I had a training, we were talking about lived experience, lived history, right? Like how your history, how how the way that you move through the world impacts you and the way you you interact with others. And people were talking about the World Cup right before the training started. And so I asked at the beginning of the training, like, what do you all think that world, the World Cup and equity have to do with one another? And it was a conversation that ended up taking like an hour of this three-hour training up. And I was so glad we had the conversation because it was fascinating. I mean, this was a training with, I would say, most of the people there were in their 30s, early 40s, racially very diverse, gender diverse, sexual orientation diverse, uh, diverse in terms of fields of expertise um, and things that these people did professionally, um, from journalists to people who work for nonprofits or for the city or in government to lawyers. It was all over the map. And we had such an interesting conversation. And the first and most, I think, important thing that came up was the, the issue of accessibility Um, And I don't mean accessibility in the way that we talk about it when we talk about disability. I mean accessibility in terms of how accessible soccer is as a sport. And so when we talk about soccer, soccer is the most popular sport in the world. Like this has been true for a very long time. And when we talk about the world, we're talking about a place that is majority non-white, right? Um, Most of the world's population isn't white. Most of the world's population is located um, in places that are black or brown um, or some other hue that is not considered white. And uh, soccer is accessible. And when we say that, like, what do we mean, P, by like soccer is accessible? Like, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it requires a ball, right? And yeah. you can make goals out of anything. Rocks. Literally. Literally. Cones, rocks, <laughs> anything. Back, backpacks. I mean, kids in other countries two are- Two cars, make, two parked cars, literally. It literally does not matter. They can yeah. make a ball out of kids. Trash cans. Yeah, kids can make balls out of like, Nothing too. All sorts of shit. Yeah. So, so I've yes. seen kids playing with like balls that are made out of like, I don't know what's inside, but shit like taped yeah. on something that they're kicking. I've seen kids playing without shoes on. I've seen kids like when I lived in South Africa playing with, um, instead of shin guards with egg cartons um, as shin guards. So that they don't, you know, screw their, like fuck their shins up, like whatever. Like all you need is a ball and you don't even need goals. A lot of times people don't play with goals, right? They're just like dribbling around and like trying to get past one another. And, you know, you don't even need that much open space. Like you need a little bit, but if you're just playing soccer with your friends, like 
you just need somewhere to dribble a ball essentially. Um, so that's what we mean by accessible. Like soccer is something that even the poorest of the poor can play and participate in. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. It doesn't require like a lot of space. Um, it doesn't require much of anything. And so, you know, if you've had the privilege of traveling as much as I have, like you've seen soccer played in like some really like random ass places um, with random ass equipment. It's one of like my most joyous things in life of traveling like one of the best experiences I've I've had or some of the best experiences I've had I should say are like seeing kids play soccer in just like weird places like and and do weird things I remember when I went to Mozambique um for the first time when I was living in in South Africa I saw some kids playing soccer and I was like driving by and I was out in the middle of nowhere literally like up the coast in this town called Inharime which is a former slave port um, where there's a huge slave castle and there's like all these black people that live there um, in villages and these kids, there was a soccer field. Right. And that's the other thing. Like, I love how, like, no matter where you go in like Africa or Latin America, like there's a soccer field and oftentimes a very well-maintained one. Um, but these kids are playing soccer and I just kind of like stopped the car um, to see like what was going on. And it was so fucking funny. They were like really pissed that I stopped to watch and started throwing Coke cans, empty ones at the car. But it brought me so much joy to just see like this continuity, right? Like kids playing soccer, like in like the, the middle of nowhere. And it's a thing that you will see everywhere in the world. Absolutely. And I love it. Like, when it's so beautiful. And I used to, I used to live in Queens. I used to live in Woodside. Actually, I lived almost ever in Queens, but I think Woodside is the most diverse area of land. There's a New York Times article. There's so many different cultures in Queens. And I would play pickup all the time growing up in New yeah. York. And there's, it would all, it would be such a just mixture of people, young, mm -hmm. old, kids, Hispanic, Black, just, and a lot of times, they didn't speak English, but like mm -hmm. soccer was the the language. Like just yeah. soccer, just playing together was the language. And you can make friends anywhere doing that, right? 100%. Like, which is amazing. I mean, I'm the same. Like I made most of my friends in Cape Town when I lived there because I played club soccer, like for University of Cape Town. Um, and I played, you know, club soccer in college and um, I played pickup a lot as well when I was at USC. And it was the same thing. It was just like the like USC was dope in the fact that it opened up its facilities, which are like pretty nice um, in the middle of campus where the track is for soccer. Like at night, like you could just come play pickup there on like their nice aster fields. And I would either stay after soccer practice or like I'd come on the weekend sometimes or whatever. And, you know, it's just like I was usually the only woman, I will say. That was funny. Same. Um, and just like bodying dudes <laughs> was my favorite, but it was so mixed. It was like the community playing soccer. And I loved that. And I think that that's something that like you see if you're a soccer player, like that's something you see everywhere in the world, which is like not everywhere, but like a lot of places in the world um, where soccer is like the sport that people like play. Matters. The only thing that matters is that you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, true, right? Right? Like, and that you don't bitch a lot. Like, people get so pissed at like the the people who just like, especially if you're playing pickup, the people who just like complain constantly. Um, but yeah, the only thing that matters is like how good you are. Like, oh, you're a girl. <laughs> like, you can play if you can keep up, right? Like, yeah, we don't care. Exactly. Um, which I love. Like, soccer has such um like an equalizing uh, effect For to sure. it when it comes to like all things identity, um, which like is one of the most beautiful things. That being said. I think it's so interesting 
that soccer is like the most accessible sport, I would argue, in the world, other than like running, probably. Um, which like I don't know if you even consider that like a sport. It's like an athletic venture, but um, it's not a team sport, certainly, um, in the same way that soccer is at least. Um, it's fascinating that soccer is considered so accessible, but it's also considered like the most elite sport in the world in a lot of ways when we're talking about team sports. Um, sure, like skiing super elite because it's like fucking expensive as hell. Um, but the two most highly paid athletes in the world right now are Cristiano Ronaldo and who? Mbappe. Yeah, P's favorite, which again, she's My ready favorite, to... but I'm still rooting for Messi. Yeah, I was just going to put it like a plug-in for him to go on a date with you, but whatever. Um, oh, that too, cool. yeah. Yeah, so she's about that life. Um, <laughs> not messy, just kidding. <laughs> not, not not messy. Um, so it's just interesting, like, how elite of a sport soccer can be. And, like, P and I both played soccer growing up um, very competitively. Christina played in college. Um, I... To my dad's dismay, and my dad's like sitting downstairs where I am right now. So he's probably hearing this, wanting to like throw something at me. But I didn't. I turned down, you know, my college soccer scholarships and was like, I'm about to go drink for sport now. That's what we're doing in these streets. But, you know, we played soccer for a long time, both of us, um, both during college, after college. Um, and it's expensive, it's expensive uh, especially in the West. We're, we were both maybe one or one or two players of color on our teams. On every team, like ever, for the most part. Ever. Even in college. Yeah, even in college. Yep. I was lucky at USC playing on the club team. There were a few um, women of color. So, like, I think I was one of two black players. But there were a few, like, some of my really close friends are um, Asian women who played, like, either Hawaiian, Asian, or, like, mixed with other things. Um. I'm trying to think so who else was on the like, team. There were a what? couple of Southeast Asian girls, but it was like very white. So it's like what three to five out of like a twenty, like twenty-two or like whatever. Twenty it, yeah. plus squad. Yeah, which is wild. Like the fact that we're like, oh, well, there are a few. <laughs> it's sad, <laughs> and we're like, like really trying sad. to like. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. That was Jane. Yeah, that one. Or, I'm yeah. not really sure what her. Yeah. Anyways, we were typically the only black women on the teams we played on or the only like multiracial or like whatever darker skinned people. Um, And I just think, you know, we know because of like the level we played at and how long we played for how expensive it is. Right. So like even back in 2002 or three, like when I was a senior in high school or a junior in high school, good soccer cleats were $230, $240. Right. And that's still like the price for like good soccer cleats Um, playing on a club team. You're looking at paying thousands of dollars a year for your club team membership that goes to paying the coach that goes to uniforms or kits. Um, And then talk about travel and tournaments. We're talking about plane tickets. We're talking about hotel rooms. We're talking about meals on the road, a parent to go with you because you're 15 or 16 and flying to Florida. Like I went every year, the day after Christmas, my dad and I for three or four years, we would go play in my team. My club team would go play in the Orange Classic, which is a massive tournament on the East Coast a really premier tournament. And that meant we had to fly to Florida from Pennsylvania the day after Christmas, which as you can imagine is expensive um, and stay in a hotel for four days, five days, however long the tournament was. Um, So soccer, despite being accessible, it is not easy to play elite soccer, right? It is not cheap to play elite soccer. And that's the only way that you can get to the next level to play in college, to get visibility, to get recruited, like it's to not play on the Olympic team, development team to an ODP 
costs money too. And ODP, you travel when you're on the national team, you travel and some of those expenses are not covered, um, especially when you're trying to get on the national team. And a lot of times these kids are now playing on multiple club teams, more money. And yeah. it's more competitive for these for these boys and girls now. It's super competitive. So you have to play on multiple teams. You have to play in multiple leagues um, because it's it's not like there's more teams in colleges that are expanding. It's just get, yeah. getting more competitive. We just talked about all the expenses involved in like paying for, you know, your club dues and your kits and coaching and all that shit and travel expenses, but also like parents taking time out to like take their kids to games. Like it takes a significant amount of disposable income and a significant amount of flexibility in your job to be able to like do that for your kid. And a lot of parents do not have that like access to that. So I just, it's like super important to talk about that. And like, the reason we're talking about this is when you look at the world cup and you look at who is typically at the top of the world cup, there's a reason that Morocco being in the semifinals of the world cup, the first African nation to reach that stage, despite what we just said about accessibility of soccer and how ubiquitous soccer is in Africa, it's everywhere. Um, there's a reason that Morocco was the first team to be able to accomplish this. And it's that playing elite soccer is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive both in time and in money. And it's something that a lot of people do not have access to. And Christina made the point earlier, like that's true about all sports. It is like absolutely true about all sports, but soccer in particular is incredibly expensive in terms of where you need to go to be seen and how you access um, the most elite levels of the sport. So I just, you know, I, I think the equity perspective there is important, like putting the equity lens on like, how do we make soccer more equitable? How do we make it so that like, it's not rare for an African team or a Southeast Asian team or a South American team other than Argentina or Brazil um, or Central American team to reach the World Cup, you know, knockout rounds? Like that has to do with equity and access. Um, that has to do with, you know, like what decisions are we going to make when we think about like how teams can show up to the World Cup and how you can qualify for a World Cup team? Is there a future where instead of it just being national teams, where it's like Nigeria or France or the United States, we might see a regional team so that there is more access for certain countries to get into the World Cup? And we maybe we see like, you know, Guatemala and El Salvador on a combined World Cup team, right? Like, or where we see two African countries or three African countries being allowed to combine on a World Cup team and don't even get us started on gender and access to, to soccer. I said earlier, we need to like do a whole separate episode on this, um, but gender inclusivity, right? And I'm not even talking about like, you know, transgender inclusivity, which is like another conversation as well, but even just like women, right? We just got to the point um, this World Cup, where the winnings of the men's team passed a certain stage, which I don't think they got to because the U.S. men's soccer program is fucking trash, we're going to go towards U.S. women's soccer because of the gendered pay inequity that has been present for so many years. So, so many things to talk about when we're talking about equity and the World Cup. Um, but it's just something like you should be thinking about. It's something like we should all be thinking about, right? Like, why do the teams look the way they do? Why are certain countries represented and not other countries? Why is it so difficult for countries from certain regions of the world to advance? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anything I missed, B? I think, no, I think you covered it.
Also, just like, I don't think this is an equity thing. I think this is like the World Cup. Well, FIFA wants to make more money. But in 2026, when the World Cup is going to be in North America, so in, and I mean North America properly, um, Canada, the United States, and Mexico are co-hosting. So there will be venues in each country. Um, when it's here, there are going to be 48 teams, I believe, up from 32 maybe it's 46. I don't know. A lot more teams. Um, and you know, some people are like, Oh, like equity, but no, it's <laughs> that, like, there's more airtime on television, um, which means more people, more networks can make money. Um, and you know, whatever. But I think there are real equity questions involved in like, how do we organize, um, the world cup, et cetera. All right. Anything else? We covered a lot of ground here today. P I think, um, I mean, we could have recorded like 27 episodes on this, but anything else that you're thinking of that you feel like we would be remiss um, if we didn't mention? Pretty much hated a lot of the girls on my team. I didn't have that experience. I hated a lot of the girls I played against. Like I was called a nigger. I I was called fat a lot, which I found really interesting because I was like, that's so funny because this bad bitch is fucking dusting your ass. Like, which I think was a very racialized thing. I was like the only black player in the field and I was bigger. Like I was more muscular than everyone else, but I was just like pure muscle. Um, But yeah, I didn't have that much beef with like teammates ever. I usually like got along with my teammates. Um, But I can see why like being the only person of color on a team, like it would be, you know. I think being the only person of color on the team, I think there was also, there were some rich ass. Yeah, the class families. There, it was also like a class thing too, I think. Yeah. Like the socio- I mean, same. Socioeconomic disparity between players, especially as an, a person of color and you're the only person there. There's, yeah. there's going to be different perspectives um, and like almost insecurities too. Yeah. And I feel like that's probably a difference in your experience and my experience. Like, I think racially speaking, we probably had quite similar experiences in terms of being like the only one, et cetera. But I think because my family was, when I was playing soccer in high school, at least like, I don't know, it would be considered like upper middle class. We, and my dad would roll up to like soccer practice in like some fancy BMW. There was less of like the, like, I'm going to stun on you right now because like I'm a rich white kid piece. Right. Um, I think also because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, at least up until college, I was playing soccer in Philly. And so these are white people who are used to black people. Like Philly is a very black city. These are not white people who like have not interacted with, seen black people to go to high school, black people, like whatever. What was Tacoma like in terms of the racial demography of who you were interacting with on a regular basis if you're one of those white kids on your soccer team? It was mixed, although I did go to private school, so it was super white. Hmm. Um, yeah upper middle class and above I think Mm. my immediate friends it was pretty it was mixed it was mixed I want to say that the majority of the people or the girls on my team um I'll just say it was mixed (laughs) I'll say it okay so I think we've gotten all of what we (laughs) came here to get for our world cup episode or episodes yeah. Anything so else? There's many layers, not just soccer. This particular World Cup kind of brought all of this to light, even though these issues have been going on. Unfortunately, it it came to 
the surface this year with this World Cup. And this is just one case of a lot of inequity that happens in soccer, sports, just in general. Yeah. Um, that we should all just be aware of. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm glad we touched on, we could have, again, talked about this for like days, but not just the racial component, but like the monetary component, right? The socioeconomic component, the regional or geographic component, the ethnicity and national origin component, class, which sometimes is different than socioeconomic status. Like, you know, we're talking about like all these different regions of the world that are colliding literally in the World Cup. So I think it's important as we have conversations on the podcast to continually bring up that like, yes, we talk about race a lot and we talk about race from an American perspective a lot, but like there's more than the American perspective, one. And two, um, race is always there in conjunction and combination with something else, right? Like it is a very, with very- many things. Yeah. <laughs> it's very rarely like just race. Like it's always like race and like skin tone or skin color, race and socioeconomic status or race and sexual orientation or gender identity. So, you know, we don't, I mean, I think by virtue of just like, having limited time and limited space to discuss things. We flatten issues. Like everybody does that. The news does it. Like any conversation you have is going to flatten something, but keep in mind that this is like a multidimensional conversation and everything that we talk about is not the entirety of the world of, of the issue, right? There's like more past what we're, we're saying, right? Some of these players are experiencing racism on their own teams and then also racism at the world cup by virtue of, um, you know, their race or whatever it might be. There's so many different components here, um, so many different things that are happening. So with that, I think we have said as much as we can without having a 27-hour long episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am still sad about Morocco, but whatever. I have faith that they are going to come back with a vengeance in four years. And yeah, anything else, P, before we sign off? I think that's it. That's it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Until next time. Um, Try to not be racist. That would be cool. Stay hydrated. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And thirsty. (laughs) Stay hydrated and thirsty? (laughs) Who are you? You're so weird. Until next week, keep your glasses full and remember that racism is garbage trash (laughs) basura none of this would be possible without the support of our talented team big ups to our producers lana shea and kate bataille thank you so much and shout out to coda the friend for allowing us to use his music whoop 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 bye